Hello, we may be recording this as uh, winter looms, but actually it's very warm, balmy, sweaty, sticky even. Around me are all sorts of plants that even ten years ago you would never have seen growing here. It's beyond doubt, beyond argument, that the climate has changed and that it's entirely our doing. Or at least it is here in the entirely man-made Mediterranean biome at the Eden Project in Cornwall, which a decade ago was still being built. We, and I'll get on to who we is in a minute, are here in front of a select audience for the second of four discussions on different aspects of cultural responses to our changing climate. The grand plan is that these mediating change discussions will help to build a framework for thinking about and improving these responses, making them more involving, more wide-reaching, maybe even more effective. This time around, our focus, and we will try to stay focused, even if with this panel it may not be easy, is on popular culture, making a splash in the mainstream. Movies and plays... TV drama and comedy, news programmes and documentaries, public art and museums, stand-up and anything else that can reach out beyond the likely to be like-minded to engage with the wider public, even the ones who say they're sick to death of hearing about climate change. In the 1967 Hammer version of Nigel Neal's Quatermass in the Pit, Professor Quatermass asks his archaeologist friend, if we found that our Earth was doomed, say by climatic changes... What would we do about it? The archaeologist replies, nothing, just go on squabbling as usual. That fabulously prescient exchange is by some margin the earliest reference I'm aware of to climate change in something that reached a mass audience, not only anticipating what would take another few decades to become a global issue, but anticipating our fudged and fumbled response to it as well. Fast forward to now and you'll find plenty of mainstream references to climate change or more often to global warming but now filter out the ones that are just using it for a topical reference or a cheap gag. What's left that genuinely raises awareness, changes attitudes or alters behaviours? And what more can and should artists, writers, performers and other creatives do within popular culture to address this most pressing of planetary problems? Now there's lots more I could say, but I'm going to leave the bulk of the talking to our panel. With me are Tim Smith, palindrome and co-founder and chief executive of the Eden Project, creative producer Vicky Long, who specialises in developing cultural work related to climate change, comedian Marcus Brigstock, or more accurately, comedian who does quite a bit about the environment in and beyond his routines, and Joe Smith, senior lecturer in environment at the Open University and consultant on media and environment. Tim Smith, I'll start with you, since we're on metaphorically and literally home soil. This, this demi-paradise Eden that we find ourselves in, it's, it's just coming up for its 10th anniversary, and of course it's now associated as a, as a, a beacon of sustainability, of greenness, of, of approaches to climate change. But back when you were building it, back when you were planning it, presumably that was much lower down in the public consciousness. So has it, how has it evolved to become part of this, and how would you have done things differently if climate change had been the issue then it is now? Well, we came at it from the point of view of the environment in the widest sense being the most important issue and wanting to connect people back to realising they were dependent or rather interdependent on the natural world because I think a lot of people were, I don't know, seeing, seeing the natural world as something apart from us. We wanted to be the world's first rock and roll scientific foundation because we were really fed up with hearing an awful lot of intelligent people talking to not a lot of other intelligent people about their own prejudices rather than addressing the people who weren't interested in environmental issues. So for us, uh, the issue of what we've done differently is a moot point because I'm not sure we'd have done very much differently, in fact, because the story evolved and I think what we're going to find is that the climate change story is going to deconstruct again away from the word climate change because people can't get round climate change 
and go back towards breaking it into its constituent building blocks that lead to climate change so that people can feel they have some agency, if you like, over being able to affect a change, because I don't think any of us feel realistically we can do anything about it as a global umbrella title, but I think we can do a heck of a lot if we have a new narrative, which is about putting the little bits that build up the constituent parts together. So you're almost suggesting that what we can do in terms of popular culture and climate change is largely frighten people about those two words, but if we actually break it down as to what climate change will cause and what we can do about it, then we have a better chance of success. No, absolutely. When I go and talk, there's usually always one clever clogs who stands up at the end at question time who says, I think you're an agent of the so-and-so and that climate change isn't happening, blah, 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 blah. And you have then got a choice as to whether you're going to have a stand-up argument with a guy where you exchange your prejudices with his. It's always a guy, never a woman for some reason. <laughs> and, and the guy, the, but the way to disarm people like that is to very sweetly say, do you agree that we are not living as easily with the weft and weave of nature as we could be? And they always go, yes, I do agree with that. And you can say, well, we can be friends then. Do you think you have more chance of actually reaching that kind of... Skeptic, and I think the latest statistics are that something like 40% of the British public still claim to be skeptical about climate change. Do you have more chance of reaching them through something like Eden because they may come through the doors than something would do that was a climate change play or a climate change TV programme that might actually self select an audience who already was predisposed to those issues? If I was being honest, yeah, because I think most people who I meet who talk about climate change bore the hell out of me. Really, they come across... We'll try hair. not to today. No, but you get all this hair shirt thing. You're going to have to give this up. You're going to have to give that up. We're going to, you know, to be resilient, we've got to do less, 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 less. I think the idea is to actually show people that life can be lived joyously and fully and that the challenges that are being thrown at us are, for the first time for our generation, worth actually facing up to. And I think it's rather fun. It should be viewed as fun rather than, oh, my God, we're doomed. Joe Smith, is this a problem that has only got worse down the years? The more people, quite legitimately, with the statistics, with the figures, with the scientific research, try and draw attention to climate change and the consequences and what we need to do, the more they are seen as doom-mongers, hair-shirt purveyors, frighteners, paralysers, rather than potential agents of change. Well, I I ought to offer the the glass-half-full version first. In the period since the Quatermass film was uh, made we have gone from climate change being a, a seminar room conversation among a few dozen people to being an idea, a weird abstract idea that the things we do every day affect the global climate. That's been accepted by 60 to 70% of the population in the developed world. And that's an amazing achievement. That's an, uh, that's an achievement particularly of the science and policy community. It's an achievement of specialist journalists who've, I think, told the story pretty effectively. Where I I agree with Tim thoroughly is that we've uh, tended to tell a story about the future of our response to this, wholly in terms of fear and uh, denial of of, of things. So the 40% of the people that actually we need to draw with us to build a working majority, they didn't arrive at the beginning of the 21st century uh, expecting to be rationed. And that's a question when you begin to move out of developing, uh, developed uh, world countries and have international negotiations, actually you, you've got a lot of people in the South who absolutely think that fridges, access to cars and so on is, is part of the plot for them in the 21st century. So, yeah, I think the, the fear and uh, uh, personal de- denial story is, is not going to be able to build substantial action on the topic. 
Marcus, how do we get around this problem? If you have a TV programme about the environment, if you have a play that is about climate change, if you have an article that is about sustainability, that a lot of the people who you want to most reach with that will turn the channel, turn the page, turn their mind away from it. For me, that's exactly at the core of what's most difficult about discussing climate change and sustainability in in the work that I do is I I could have quite easily by now written a a two-hour stand-up show about climate change but there's absolutely no point because the only people who would come and see it already agree with me so the approach I've taken is to sort of drip feed it into everything that I do whenever I'm on the radio or doing a stand-up show on on any subject or sketches or whatever else is to just try and keep it in there just a little bit and, and people people are on to me it's no sleight of hand they, <laughs> they they know what to expect when I appear wherever I appear but I, I do think that it sort of crosses that divide I think to be honest one of the most effective ways of of bridging that gap is to get the right people involved people who are perhaps a little bit unexpected the, there was a film that Leonardo DiCaprio made called The 11th Hour which wasn't really any good. Um, it was fine, you know. I mean, no, nothing wrong with it. It just it wasn't brilliant, but it was fine. But for me, it was a really exciting thing because I thought, you know, there are a lot of people who are just going to watch this because Leonardo DiCaprio is in it, and he's uh, not only an extremely good actor, he, I think, is fairly ornamental to look at. And so, you know, people were probably inclined to watch that, and I, th- I think that's a good thing. I think the more in the celebrity sort of culture that we have, the more you can engage people who it makes you go, oh, oh, right, oh, well, I didn't know. Well, they take it seriously. Perhaps I will as well. I think that's a way of sort of bridging that gap. But you can't convince people of something that they don't wish to be convinced of. You you, you just can't do it. And I think, I don't know. I mean, for me, in terms of creating comedy, one of the easiest routes has been to mock the people who think that it's not happening because personally I find them easily mockable that they will say a great deal but when questioned they haven't read anything and for me to to get laughs what's been more challenging has been to try and take the idea of sustainability and and sort of green living for want of better expressions and try to express the, the positives in it you know, and, and how, how much I've enjoyed it. OK, well, since you talked about positives, let's, I think before we go any further, let's try and talk about some of the successes in this area, things not necessarily directly on climate change but to do with any sustainability, environmentalism, green, that have used popular culture and reached an, an audience that w- wasn't just already of that mind. Vicky. <laughs> yes, well, I, I think I've been very fortunate to work with a, a really broad range of artists on uh, climate change. And I think really imagination has a, a, a big role to play. We need to grab the public's imagination on this subject. And I think artists have a role to play in that. Jan Martel has talked about climate change being an impersonal force that's deeply disempowering. And um, I think that... This is Jan Martel who did the play Art, I think. If I'm, I'm thinking, what is that? Yeah, right? Jan Martel, Life of Pi, novelist. Life of Pi? Writer, yeah. You'll edit that bit out, uh, like, <laughs> Jan Martel, who did Life of Pi. And what he says is that in contrast to that, that impersonal force that climate change is, art and the making of art is personally involving for the artist and for the spectator. 
And so I think in working with artists and making exhibitions, films, events, working with places like the Eden Project, we've been able to really bring people in, involve them in the subject, and kind of reach their bloodstream in some way. It's been very exciting. And I, I mean, all of the work I've done over the last five years, I see as an experiment. I don't think there's any magic answer to what works and what doesn't work, what will be successful. But the, the experiment has been very vital and, and interesting, and I think there have been many successes along the way. You say there, aren't, there isn't a magic formula, but if after five years of experiments, aren't there things that we can at least learn and extrapolate and say, actually, we're better to focus over here than we are over there? Yeah, I think, I think it's really about bringing people together and involving, involving people. So I think a mixed offer works. If, for example, at the Eden Project, we have a comic a musician, a scientist, we have an installation, a piece of visual work. I think that really works because there's something that just about near everybody can relate to and become involved in. I think You're not it, meaning crudely come for the comedy, stay for the science. You're meaning more than that. I, 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 <laughs> I think people will come to, as Tim says, come to the Eden Project to be at the Eden Project. And what Cape Farewell has done is to create events here. I've worked for the Cape Farewell Project over the last five years. Well, which is an art, science, engagement with climate change organisation. Works with a, a quite mongrel group of artists and brings them into contact with climate scientists. And then the group at, at the centre of Cape Farewell works with those artists to produce work and, and closely with partners like Eden Project and Southbank Centre, British Council. Tim, same question for you and don't necessarily just answer in terms of successes at Eden. I think what we're talking about in terms of culture is fundamentally important to give us permission to act in a different way, to create a mandate for politicians, public servants, individuals to get behind a new vision of what the future is. And while that sounds like a pretentious sentence, I happen to believe that we're living at a time which 100 years from now could be seen as the dawning of something as important as the Renaissance if we can buy into the fact that we can take agency over our futures rather than our passive flotsam and jetsam on the top of it. But before you can have a situation where, just dream a little, where, say, the current government decides it's going to radically transform the budget it has and to go with a single-mindedness that would have, if you like, the urgency of a war effort to become completely energy-independent on renewables. If you just took one particular thing, the only way they could get a mandate for that would not be as an example simply of a response to climate change because of the way everything is monetized in our world intellectually, it would have to be to do with we could also, as a tribe, get advantage through actually this brave, bold effort to show that we have actually understood first the rhythms of the earth and we are responding to them. And that's why art has such an incredibly powerful role to play to create, if you like, the wallpaper around the rooms in which the thinking is done to give people the bravery to just make that leap because it feels like the right thing. And I think also it needs to somehow project onto those who are opinion makers and decision makers the sense that they are at a moment in history where if they do not have the bravery to make decisions or take public opinion that way, they will be found wanting. That you're living at a time when you could actually harness something brilliant in us, which is aspirational, and that it will say something about who we are right now. That's the way to go, not we're doomed, we're polluting the oceans, you know, we're 
whether that's true or not, that's not an inspiration to change. The idea that through your own agency and linking up with others that you suddenly become tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people, you can actually affect... That's one of the beauties of modern communication, is that you can create an atmosphere and a persuasive proposition to a huge audience in a very short period of time. Can you give me some actual concrete examples, if concrete isn't the wrong word to use in these circumstances, of things that you think have worked, actual genuine successes? Marcus? We're sitting in one, obviously, we've touched on it already, but the thing that really blew me away is when I got over to the gallery over there and saw what this used to be, and that it was a, a dead clay pit, it was, it was this great big hole in the ground, and, and now look at it. I think it's astonishing. And obviously, this is quite an easy thing, in a sense, to get hold of when you, when you look at it as a visitor. But I think there's a lot... You know, I mean, at the moment, I'm finding... Because they've got these... Um, they're not free, but they're very cheap bikes to rent in London. So it's a question of what you're willing to define as art and culture. People cycling around London on bikes sponsored by Barclays Bank is not necessarily art, but it's altogether more visually appealing than people sitting, sweating and swearing in their cars. And so I, I do sit like that. And, uh, you know, I, I live in London where people live stacked up on top of each other. And actually, I see a lot of very positive changes there. I see more and more people on bicycles, not perhaps as many as there are dropping their children off at school in a Sherman tank. Um, <laughs> But nonetheless, you know, there are things to get hold of and, and things like, simple things like the pedestrianisation of Trafalgar Square and various other bits of London where, where people are, are walking around. I think there's, there's a lot to get hold of and there are a lot of successes and a lot of examples where you can be hugely encouraged. Joe, if we are talking about successes, do we also have to factor in that it, the news media may not be doing exactly what the environmental movement would like, but we have seen climate change, as you say, shift from being a very obscure term to being something we all know roughly what it means. In news media, we can find some examples. But actually, day in, day out, I think it's wrong to finger editors and journalists on the topic first. I think you've got to go a bit further upstream of the story. And it's incredibly ambitious intellectual question. How do we make sense of, of human beings place in the world and their possible influence on, on the atmosphere. Now actually almost all of the people who have any claim to authoritative knowledge on those questions agrees that humans are changing the climate almost certainly in hazardous ways. But we, had, we have to be slightly more honest about that being a long and uncertain journey intellectually. So when we try and communicate that in popular culture I'll give you two really big examples of films made five or six years ago both influential, and one of them I view as a hit and one of them I view as a miss. So Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth spends 158 minutes bashing you over the head with phrases like, the science is finished, very assertive, and then spends two minutes with a lot of Second World War references about, come on guys, we can do it together, you know, we'll change six billion light bulbs and so on. I think that that actually set up a whole set of hazards for the, uh, the environment policy and, and science community, particularly the, the, the political community. I'd contrast the, the Al Gore film with a pair of documentaries made by the BBC at about the same time. They were fronted by David Attenborough, universally loved and trusted. It was important that he presented himself as having taken a journey with the topic and arrived at a conclusion 
that it's clear that on the balance of evidence we should act on it. The second really important thing was that they threw lots of money at design in the production, so they really worked hard to try to bring to life the idea that carbon we generate in everyday life is tangible. They made graphic carbon blocks that would appear above the household of a typical American family. In the second part, it was all about actually how you would take those carbon blocks out of the sky without damaging the quality of life of that American family. So there was an even balance where Al Gore had offered 158 minutes of, of Grimathon. The second film had a very even balance, a much more compelling case. I would say that we need to focus on that. Where would we go now? I and mean, those films were made a few years ago. Well, I kind of want to scale up that second message and really push much harder at the questions like, and this is something that comedy and drama, as well as the factual people, can do a good job of, really push at the question of what have we won from 60 years of a really hearty carbon burn? What have we won in terms of you know, relationship breakdown, relations between generations, the quality of life day in, day out in a, in a city or, or in a town or in a village? Actually, we know instinctively that we've pumped all this stuff out of the ground and into the atmosphere and actually won very little in terms of advances in quality of life. So it's not saying, right, what do we have to give up when we turn off the carbon tap? It's rather saying, right, as we get smart about energy, how can we do a much better job of winning a better quality of life? Marcus, another aspect of those David Attenborough documentaries that Joe's talking about is I think they were the first ones to be shown in peak time in the United States mm. that actually dealt with environmental issues. Even when he made his series Blue Planet, when they showed it in the United States, they initially just dumped the programme that dealt with the environmental issues at the end and showed all the nice pretty ones about the animals. Yeah. Is that the difficulty, that the, the mainstream, when you actually get to the, to the right platform, there is this reluctance to give the time to do it, or if you are allowed to do it, you're labelled and judged as being from an environmental background, so there is that risk that, oh, he would say that because of who yeah. he is. I, I think that's exactly, exactly the problem, but, but that actually, you know, not just uh, the explicit documentary that uh, David Attenborough made about, uh, about climate change and his journey and all the rest of it, but, you know, looking at the pretty animals and fish and all the rest of it on Blue Planet and Life on Earth and all the rest of it, that's exactly the positive message in terms of I think trying to reconnect people with, with the you know, fairly small planet that, that we all share, that's the good stuff. And, and often I think it's better to be... I don't think they're deliberately oblique. I, I just think that they, they do a better job than anything explaining. Because you can't really talk about climate change without touching at least on the idea that this is very important and very urgent because life as we know it will change very, very dramatically... You know, you, you sort of can't do it. So I think to try and, you know, just to try and engage people in, in more creative ways in what the solutions might be is better. And I, I, think, there's, I think there is a, an appetite for that. It's just a question of whether it also needs at the same time, you know, for programmes to be made that say, look, we've really got to do this now. I mean, it's bizarre just, just looking at the at news coverage of it, how... This was a sustainability, climate change, and all the rest of it was a big political subject until the economic crash, and then it disappeared. It went absolutely, and, and it's not really re emerged yet. 
as part of the kind of narrative of, of what politics is. It's just gone. It's it's all it's all sort of disappeared at the moment, which is brought that sort of sense that oh, we uh, climate change that was a two thousand and seven story. Yeah, I mean that that definitely exists, and that's an extraordinary idea that it was something that we did for a little while, and it wasn't it interesting and. Oh, we all gave ourselves a bit of a scare where that's concerned. I mean, I, it often comes up, you know, when I get into a battle with someone who hasn't read enough about it, where they'll say, well, I mean, the last one was that hole in the ozone layer, wasn't it? And, you know, they said that was going to be awful, and then it went away. Well, largely speaking, if it has properly gone away, isn't it because we acted on it? You know, there was a problem, we found a solution, we did it, and it seems to have worked. In fact, that is a positive message that you can say if you have concerted global action, you can actually make a difference. Yeah. I wonder, is there a lesson that all the different art forms can almost learn from comedy? Because I'm guessing part of being a comedian is you are nimble enough that you don't just deliver the same material audience to audience, night by night. You, you adapt what you do. The same themes might be in there, but there yeah. is a bit of flexibility. You feel who you're talking to. Yeah. And do we need to do that when we're talking about climate and sustainability? Pitch it differently to different ages, different groups, different sections of the public. I tweak it a lot, and it's interesting, when, for me, when I talk in my shows about lots of subjects, theology is a good one, because you'd think that would be very divisive and upset people, not nearly as much as talking about climate change does. My audience divides into three groups at that point, where there's, it's not happening at all, and even if it was, there's nothing we could do about it, then there's, it's definitely happening, it's all our fault, and we feel ghastly about it, and then there's everybody in between who's sort of, yes, we think this probably is happening, and... Oh, God, you know. And, and so none of those groups are particularly comfortable about laughing about climate change, the environment, sustainability, whatever you want to call it, and which is exactly why I'm sort of perversely interested in it. I enjoy that, dealing with that thing where people feel exposed and feel that they're being asked to, uh, to do something. You know, I mean, a simple icebreaker thing that I nearly always do when I talk about it in the show is say who here's got eco bulbs in their house and most people put their hand up some of them very quickly because they want others to know that they've got eco bulbs in their house and then say good so you like me spend the first 10 minutes in every room in complete darkness and acknowledge the fact that some of these things are a bit sort of they're not difficult or hard but they're just a bit weird and they take a little bit of a little bit of getting used to I think that what's actually happened to far too many people in the environment movement is that we have been bought out. And one of the biggest betrayers, actually, by default, is yourself. Not you, personally. I'm glad. But the BBC, for example. Let me give you a completely different story about David Attenborough, who I adore and I think ought to get a sainthood. But when was the last time you saw a human being in a David Attenborough film? It's as if the world and the natural world is apart from us. Your own rules at the BBC for equality of access, the opposite view, has created the most incredibly beige betrayal of our culture to give everybody an equal voice, regardless if a million people know the world is not flat and one person thinks it is flat, we've got to give equal balance. I think that's a general media thing. It happens in the papers and other TV and radio as well as the BBC, I yeah, think. Sure, but, but, yeah, but it is I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't course, singling yeah. out yeah. the BBC, yeah. but there is an actual huge lack of courage. You know, that whole stuff about Bernard Shaw, you know, the world needs to be changed by unreasonable people because reasonable people bend themselves to it. Mm. It's true, you see it, you see, you see it everywhere. Mm. Vicky, we've talked over here about 
the difficulty of being perceived as an artist too closely associated with climate change, because you work with some artists who almost willingly embrace that term, is that difficult for them to be... Or are they so happy to say, like, this is the most, the biggest issue facing our planet today. I'm an artist. I have no choice but to try and address it through my work. Well, I, actually, mostly I work with artists who don't work mostly on climate change or haven't worked on climate change until they've come into contact with yeah. the projects that I've been involved in. And what, what I've found is that through the experience that we give them, bringing them into contact with climate science, on a journey mostly... So I've worked with the Cape for World project where we take artists on a boat to the Arctic, but we've also, we've also visited the Andes in Peru and tracked And these are there. artists and scientists so they can see the Together, science as well. that's right. That gives them a very direct route into the science of climate change. And people change on those journeys. And there's something about creating at the same time an environment in which people can come together, talk, share ideas, hatch new ideas that just changes somebody and changes what they want to do with their practice and the way that they actually are in the world. And there's something very important also about giving people a story to tell. So it's not just about the work that you then go and do, but it's the story that comes with that. And I think that good ideas and work travels on the wings of a good story. Joe, we just heard from Tim about the, the problems of this media notion of balance, that if... A thousand scientists think there is overwhelming evidence for climate change and you can find one who says, well, I'm not so sure, then that is reported in that, in that way. Do we just have to accept that is how the media works? It is not the job of the environmental movement to change the way the media is. And this is a consequence, a positive consequence, if you like, of this story moving from the periphery into the mainstream, that it will get that kind of treatment and the greenwashing and the green bashing that comes with it. Well, I think there was a period of a couple of years in the run-up to Copenhagen where editors and journalists took, I think, you know, a broadly accepted line in the science policy community that climate change is a problem and humans must address it. And that built up a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of like an infection in editors and, and journalists. They, they resented some sense of being enrolled in what seemed to be some kind of soft left agenda because of the nature of the things you have to do in re- if you're going to take climate change seriously yes, you're, you're enrolled into a body of things that do imply action so I think actually this infection built up and, and they were really looking for an opportunity you know, to, to lance it and, and there's still a sense of well, you know, actually climate change, we're through that we're on to another story now but I'd like to suggest that, that uh, it's like the difference between climate and weather. We need to understand this as intellectual weather that we've just suffered. And the long-term signals are the thing to focus on. And the long-term signals are that, actually, I think we're really bedding down an acknowledgement in culture, quite widely, but also in news culture, that climate change is a serious issue that we will have to face at some time. I'm surprised and deeply disappointed that we didn't view the economic crisis as an opportunity to rethink the economy in ways that would add the environment into our accounts. We've missed the boat, and I would say that that's a measure of something very important, which is that popular culture around environmental change lacks a political culture. And I don't mean one that agrees with itself. This is something where we need to make space for a really vigorous debate. But the one thing they all have to agree on is we must account for biodiversity in our household and national accounts. We must give carbon a price 
that allows us to be energy intelligent. After that, we don't know how we're going to make that journey. But I think environmental researchers have failed to focus on that problem. And, and I think the shortcuts we took in, in the first decade of the 21st century, we're going to pay for for a little while. But while we're paying for them, let's think hard about how we make more space for a kind of vigorous political culture around those issues. Mostly that's going to have to happen in the kind of factual realm. It's going to happen in news. But actually, we didn't work out some of the trickier social questions of the late 20th century in those spaces. Comedy and drama were really important to how families were rethought, uh, ethnicity, gender, some really big topics in society. That didn't really happen in a news or factual space. Comedy and drama helped us kind of work it out, and then we worked it out at kitchen tables and in pubs. Marcus, as Joe has just articulated uh, in some detail, trying to get the mainstream media, popular culture, to engage with the issues around climate change is complicated, it's nuanced, it's multifactorial. But for the climate deniers, sometimes it seems, actually, it's much simpler. Uh, and they can make little mocking comments, they can tell you you don't need to do anything, they can be very reassuring, they can get the quick laugh. Is the game almost skewed in their favour? Well, uh, look, I, I think it is, you know... I mean, Top Gear is the... the, the the most successful programme that the BBC makes, which really genuinely makes me want to hang myself from the top of this biome as a sort of protest. But it's immensely successful and it thrives on exactly that. You know, Jeremy Clarkson looking straight into the camera going, and it only does 20 miles to the gallon. And that's sort of a badge of pride because it's, it's an up yours to the environmental movement. It sort of flies in the face of... And it feels a bit dangerous and, you know... And it's really easy to do. And I'm, if also if you're told that the world is a scary place and you have to be responsible, having fun becomes all the more appealing. Yes, exactly. But what I do think is interesting about the cultural response is that we are more often exposed to advertising than we are to what I would call explicit works of art. Most advertising that we see and the stuff that you don't think you've seen is even better and it's genius. And there's so much from that that I think we can be encouraged by. And one of the things, perversely, that I think we should be hugely encouraged by is the success of bottled water. When you think about it, right, in the UK, there isn't anywhere where you can't drink the tap water. There are one or two buildings where the link between what's available in the taps might get dirty in the pipes in a building, but there isn't anywhere where you cannot drink the tap water. And yet, we buy in plastic bottles something that's much more expensive than petrol. When petrol goes up by a penny, it makes the news. They've convinced us that to buy water from the Alps, which you'd be very hard-pressed to tell the difference between that and... and tap water but we do it we do it all the time and so the success of of marketing has worked on us now if the environmental movement managed somehow to to harness that to embrace that and get people to do something which seems from where we are now crazy to a lot of people but it's nuts that we buy bottled water it's absolutely insane you know, I, th I think I think there's a lot of encouragement to be taken from that. So you take you take hope from human malleability and susceptibility to marketing that we can, even Absolutely. if we don't understand the reasons, be made to change Absolutely. our behaviour. We are rapidly running out of time. There's a couple of things I think I ought to bring in before we end. Um, Joe, we've not really said anything about new media. That's making a huge difference, isn't it? A, a blogger can suddenly have as much influence as a columnist. A video can go viral in minutes and be seen by millions. Well, if you describe to me a, a medium that 
was uh, almost free to enter, that allowed diverse public debate across the planet and that could cover environmental change, change issues in the round 10 years ago, I would have said, fantastic, just the job. Of course, one of the things we've seen is that disproportionately to their kind of legitimate authority, sceptics of climate change or deniers or contrarians, I probably prefer the last term, have had a field day and they've had an impact on mainstream media out of all proportion. And that's actually a serious problem because there are influential chunks of populations, particularly young people, who are increasingly grazing for their, their, their content across these kind of ranging planes and that is turning into a serious problem. So how do you recover the sense that it's, it's an opportunity? Well, I would say it does require a changed frame really, a, a changed way of thinking about this set of problems. And I would say, starting from accepting and promoting the idea that we're on a difficult and uncertain journey, we've got the potential to take everyone to a better place than we are now. It's a good medium for that. Tim, briefly, you've made pretty good use of the web here at Eden. Do you think it, it's a positive thing? Or, as Joe's indicating, there is also the risk that there are so many messages, so many streams that people will make their own narratives up and they will graze between them? I think a lot of it is background noise. I think it identifies quite an embarrassingly what a de- to what degree we are all sheep because supposed the opening up of democracy through the web often indicates that people just don't want to be different to anybody else, so they will just accept something without question. Yeah, I'm hopeful for the web in a way, but it's not. I don't think it's particularly exciting yet. I think what we're missing here is, is climate change is a terrible title. Global warming is a terrible title. I think we should stop talking about climate change in the way we do. I think, I think we've got to look for the battles that we can win. And by winning odd battles and then seeing how the quality of life is better for everybody, don't even mention to the people that are deniers or anything that it's an effort against them. I think we've got to be very careful it doesn't become an us and them. We've got to be above that. Say, OK, let's forget that. Let's just win that battle there. We'll win that one. And then once we've done that, do you all agree it's much better to not see plastic bags going down the streets and all the rest of it and turtles are not drowning and, and all the rest of it? And then we'll do the next thing and then the next thing. Suddenly a culture of the possible will emerge. OK, Tim has given us a sort of positive outline, so things that he would do that might make a difference, that are making a difference. Can I ask each of you to, to echo that? Using popular culture, what would be the most successful avenues to explore is it having an environmental story editor on the arches is it would it be having a character in eastenders who's suddenly into recycling is it going to be getting george clean to be spokesman for the planet joe why thank you i think the uh, the mistake is to think that there's one place that you'll find this and also a mistake to think that you'll go and insert a storyline i mean if i had a pound for every time i heard yep let's just get recycling into eastenders and the world will change for the better. You know, the public have a great nose for authenticity. They've got to kind of recognise themselves in, in uh, any of this kind of uh, activity. The best I would suggest, uh, you know, just one-off, would be to see uh, everyday lives presented uh, with the real impact of the carbon really backgrounded, but the real experience of the daily life. So just a trip to work, you know, people spend 40 minutes in unpaid labour sitting in their, their steel boxes. Yet there's no opportunity for them to cut gym fees, have a lovely bicycle, have a dedicated cycle lane and showers at work when they arrive. You know, safe routes to school for kids. I'd like to see, uh, you know, some of the great kind of 
filmmakers, comic, comics, drama writers, just shine a light on the perversity of the last 60 years. We've won so little at such huge cost. Take it off the climate change topic. Of course, it's there, it's in the background. Just nestle it in our real concerns every day, which kind of summarised as food, sex, death, and have we had a nice day. And, and because we'll be more burn. open to change if you realise what we have isn't that as much worth protecting as we think it is. That's it, yeah. Vicky? Well, simply really to encourage a culture of exploration, I think, and that's what Tim's been talking about and what Joe's just talked about. I think we're on a journey, an uncertain journey, and uh, we need to delve into that, enjoy it, and find out things. I think we expect answers... We expect solutions unfairly often from scientists, but actually all of us now just need to take an, a, a leap of faith and, and go forward and explore. And finally, Marcus. I think anything that um, brings groups of people together in a way in which they are fully aware that they're surrounded by other people is perhaps a, a, a big change that I would like to see more of. I think the more we can develop culturally and you know just literally a sense that the world is filled with other people who are worth meeting and and whose space is just as important to them as as mine is to me that that's a sort of a bleak way of of going about you know I don't know bringing about environmental change because you you can avoid the topic then and people can have a really really good time yeah, focus on the joining together and on, on the doing something. Yeah. OK, well, we are a community that has briefly come together, but I think one of the ways that popular culture stays popular is knowing when you can have too much of a good thing. So that is where we will leave things, although the Mediterranean biome at the Eden is a very pleasant place to chat away the day. Uh, I'm going to thank our panel of Tim Smith, Vicky Long, Marcus Brigstock and Joe Smith. Thank you to yourselves, whoever you are, for taking the time and trouble to listen. As I said at the start, this is one of four specially recorded mediating change discussions around the broader theme of cultural responses to our changing climate. The first is on the history of such responses. The third will be an attempt to analyse and categorise the range of responses. And the final one will not unreasonably look at the future and the ways that culture, politics and science interact as we try to anticipate and respond to climate scenarios.